Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are helping to shape the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Connor Coleman. Connor is the founder of Resiliency Lands, a progressive, conservation-minded land management and advisory group committed to promoting ecological and resource resiliency. Prior to starting Resiliency Lands, Connor held a variety of positions closely connected to the land, jobs that would be on the wish list of anyone who loves adventure and the American West. He was a wildland firefighter, a cowboy, a bison manager, and a conservationist, just to name a few. He's currently based in Colorado's Roaring Fork Valley, and he resides on a spectacular ranch just outside the town of Carbondale. You may be surprised to learn that Connor was not born and raised in the West or on ranches. On the contrary, he grew up in Ohio, went to college in North Carolina, and after paying his dues in East Coast conservation and earning two master's degrees from Duke University, he finally headed to Colorado to focus his energy on Western landscapes. Thanks to an insatiable curiosity, a rock-solid work ethic, a service mindset, and a willingness to insert himself into new and sometimes uncomfortable situations, Connor has carved out a professional niche for himself in the West doing rewarding, exciting, and important work. Connor's education and unconventional career path can serve as a great blueprint for anyone who loves the American West and wants a life centered around land, conservation, and natural resources. When I was in my early 20s, I would have loved to meet a guy like Connor who could have pointed me in the right direction. So in this episode, we talk in depth about his career and his ability to put himself out there to create exciting professional opportunities. We dig deep into his thoughts on conservation in the West, as well as issues related to forest fires throughout the country. Connor loves to read and learn, so he has tons of great book and film recommendations. We covered a ridiculous amount of information, so be sure to check out the episode notes for a full list of topics and links to everything that we discussed. Hope you enjoy. So the first question I've been asking people is when you meet someone and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that question? Well, uh, as of just a few months ago, I'm in the business of private land and ranch land management consulting. Um, kind of been doing private land, nonprofit-based conservation work for about a decade, but just recently switched over to uh, doing it uh, as a kind of private business uh, as a consultant. And yeah, that's what I'm doing these days. Yeah, that's awesome. And I want to talk about kind of your road to how you ended up working for yourself, kind of combining all of the the different skills that you developed over your career. Um, but I, I thought maybe we could start out first just talking about the, the conservation and the importance of conserving ranches. Cause I think a lot of people, particularly in the, the world of outdoor recreation, they, they love public lands and they, you know, uh, national forests, national parks, that kind of thing and o- wide open wild spaces. But I think a lot of people don't really understand the importance of conserving working ranch land. And so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that and kind of your thoughts on, on why we need to conserve ranches and why they're important specifically in the, in the American West. Yeah. You know, most people, uh, when they think of land, think of their national parks or their state parks, forest service land, uh, Bureau of land management. Um, 
and don't really appreciate what the private land does. Um, it, it does a lot of things. Um, I, we should probably start with food production. Mm -hmm. Most of our food is or pretty much all of our food is produced on, on either farms or ranches. And in a lot of cases, in cases it's becoming these commercial industrialized Monsanto and things like that. But, you know, really the, the good food that people are starting to appreciate a lot more of the grass fed beef and the free range chickens and the, you know, the more organic, um, the stuff you see at whole foods is produced on these smaller scale ranches. And, a lot of these ranches are, are codependent with the uh, federal lands. Mm -hmm. You get these uh, grazing permits. Um, you get hunting leases where ranches uh, have outfitters that then utilize federal lands. So they're not mutually exclusive, private lands, ranches, and uh, the public lands that people really hold near and dear to heart. So you see a lot of the... Uh, the operations, the facilities, the homes uh, on the, the ranches, the private lands, and then they utilize the public lands for summer grazing. And while their livestock or whatever it may be is up on the federal lands, they're growing hay or uh, you know using the ranch for ecotourism. Uh, it's becoming a lot more diverse this day and age because commodity agriculture just isn't sustainable uh, on its own. And so the conservation of these ranches helps with the management of the public land as well. And, mm -hmm. you know, and there's so many other ecosystem services that they provide. A lot of the private lands, as you may know, are, are in the valley bottoms. Yep. That's, that's the good land, the land that's fertile along the rivers, uh, along the waterways that are easy to navigate, where people settled and developed over, um, you know, generations. And so it's really good, high-quality land, and so we need to uh, conserve these lands and, and find out stimulus to enable these landowners, ranchers, farmers to stay there. Because uh, you know, as, as the cattle are coming down in the winter, or, or sheep or whatever they may be, you also have the, the wildlife, the elk, the deer. Uh, yeah, that's they, a great point. A lot of people don't – a lot of people always forget about that, that aspect of it with the wildlife. Mm-hmm. And those those areas are the same places that very easily get sold off into subdivisions or development. So, you know, private land conservation, especially ranch land conservation, is is it's so hard to just sit down and wrap your head around it in one go around. It's it, it, it's taken me kind of a lifetime to really appreciate the symbiotic relationship between federal uh, public and private lands. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a, a a good way to describe it. It's just that it's unbelievably complicated, and I think you know there's some people that think we need to just get all ranchers out of here or get all people out of here and restore things to a, a wild state. And then you got on the other end people that like these big corporations or or real estate developers or whatever that just want to you know basically pillage the land and take as much money out of it as possible. And neither one of those solutions is right. And the, the answer is somewhere there in the middle. Um, and it's, it's a lot more complicated than just a, a quick one sentence answer. Like a lot of people want to want to have, um, can you talk a little bit, uh, just to go a little bit deeper into that, that about the ranching, um, about why grazing is such an important part of, of land conservation in the West. Cause again, I think a lot of very well-meaning and well-educated, um, people who identify as environmentalist 
think that a lot of them think that all cows are bad or that all grazing is bad and that ranching is bad for the environment when in reality we need those animals or some animal to be grazing these grasslands for the health of the grassland. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. And I will, you know, as we mentioned in the past, I'll go ahead and make a plug for Jim Hall and his, uh, for the love of the land because, and the podcast you did with him, because I've told you, I've listened to it multiple times. Just it's, it always helps me uh, recall the, the appropriate rhetoric to, uh, presents to interested parties. And then also uh, other places people can consider is Alan Savory's TED Talk on yeah, that's great. And, and grazing is those two, uh, th- that podcast and that TED Talk can probably explain <laughs> all of this much, much better than I can. But, you know, I've only been out in the West for a few years and in that short period of time have gained a tremendous insight into the role of uh, grasslands and grazers uh, and the co-evolution of the two. Um, you know, it's interesting back, uh, I'm sure we'll get, get into this, but you know, I, I was in North Carolina for a while when I was in graduate school and studying forestry amongst other things, realized when I wanted to come out West, I needed to know some about grasslands and I knew almost nothing. And back in, in North Carolina, no one talks about grasslands. Yeah. And so, I uh, was fortunate enough to uh, find a professor to take me on to do an independent study on grassland ecology and restoration. And as we started, I was struggling a little bit. And he said, all right, you're, you're a forester. Think of them as little forests, tiny forests. And uh-huh. man, I was just like, you know, honey, I shrunk the kids. And I, I was able to <laughs> bring myself down to that level. And all of a sudden, these these grasslands became relatable. They became forests to me, and um, and through that, I was able to understand myself the disturbance regimes and how, just like a forest or something that's more uh, appealing or sexy to the public, um, can become tangible and relatable. Mm-hmm. And so I see how, you know, these grazers, the 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 function they play as a disturbance agent. Uh, in these grassland ecosystems are so important. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, again, listen to Jim's podcast. He, he does uh, the podcast you do with Jim. He can explain it much more eloquently than I ever could, but they're just co-evolved. And uh, a lot of these areas that grazers are on currently or historically um, can't sustain other types of agriculture. They can't sustain uh, commercial uh, farms, mm-hmm. you can't just tomatoes or corn or what have you. Pretty much out here in Colorado, uh, you can grow grass and potatoes. Yep, and that's about it. Without you know greenhouses and um, so that's 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 what we're stuck with. And when you take out uh, grazers, you start changing the ecology of these landscapes, and you start getting uh, encroachment of forest uh, vegetation, pinyon juniper being the big one. And as that happens over time, you develop this uh, different ecosystem, this homogenous pinyon juniper landscape, which really you lose the entire understory. You lose the the forbs and the grasses and the biodiversity under there, and you change uh, the disturbance regime, what, what it's capable of. And, you know, fire ecology is something I'm very, very interested in. And you really change the, the fire regime. And it just – it dominoes. I mean, I can – I'm trying not to go too far down a rabbit hole, but 
it's there's such a place for grazing animals in the West that people just don't comprehend. Um, you know, it's not the, the, the vegetarian side of things or, you know, food, food consumption. It's what the role they can play in the ecosystem is. Um, and as you start changing ecosystems due to lack of disturbance, you just get on a slippery slope that, uh, it's very difficult to recover from once you get down it. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, um, I think it's cool that you go into that amount of detail and that you can get that deep, that deep, that quickly, because it's an indicator of just how complex these grasslands are. You know, I think most people, including me, you know, years ago, you look at grass and you think, oh, it's just grass. You know, there's nothing, nothing to that. But the, the biodiversity in, uh, you know, some of these short grass prairie ecosystems is just, it's unbelievable. And it, it, like, I think that I've never heard that, uh, that idea of trying to shrink yourself down and look at it as a forest. But I think that's a, that's a really good, good way to look at it. And, you know, one other thing I'll say on that is that um, I'm not saying that, that all ranchers are all, you know, all ranching and all grazing is good because, um, you know, ranchers can overgraze a property and they can screw it up just as quickly as they can keep it, um, you know, keep it healthy and vibrant. And so I think that, again, that's where it comes, your work comes into play, your current work, of advising these ranchers on, on good ways to graze and, and that kind of thing. Um, can you give an example or two of, of some of the projects you've been working on since you've, since you've started your own business? Yeah, it's been, it's, been, it's been a interesting development, uh, going into business for myself. It wasn't when I, at least currently wasn't what I planned on doing. I considered it back as I was, uh, exploring options for graduate school. I thought about back East doing, starting my own consulting business in a different capacity. But, uh, yeah, now here I find myself. And as I was looking to move on talking to a lot of the landowners I worked with, they, uh, th- that I'd worked with in my previous occupation as, as, uh, an employee with a local land trust. Um, they said, well, you know, we've discussed a lot of great ideas and how we can improve the land. Would you be willing to, you know, help us consult on this? And, uh, okay. Yeah. Wow. I, you know, Maybe it's something I could do on the side. And then it just slowly developed into a, a full-fledged uh, occupation. Mm-hmm. And I've been really focused on working with conservation-minded uh, landowners. And that includes either landowners who have a conservation easement already placed on their private lands. Yep. Those considering uh, a conservation and conservation, or conservation easement and conservation options – uh, on their private land because it's, you know, there's a lot that goes into planning for uh, the long-term management of ranches. And when you put a legally binding contract, like a conservation easement on your land, you have now set new parameters and new rules that you must function in. And, uh, it's, it's forever. So you have to do a lot of long-term planning in the process. And so I've, I've found a great niche uh, for myself in, in this occupation. Yeah, it it definitely sounds like, and I think there's definitely a need for for that because, I'm, I you know part of my work is in the ranch brokers, and then part of it is in the conservation consulting. And you just don't run across many people who have the skill set to effectively put these plans into place like you're doing. So, um, I I think one thing that I'm really interested in about your background is kind of how you got to where you are um, because you're you said 33, right? Yeah, and so you've and you're not from the West originally. 
Um, you're 33, yet you've managed to do, you, you've got a, a really cool resume of a lot of really interesting stuff, interesting jobs and adventurous type jobs that have all led to this current gig that you're doing now. And so I think for young people, I was saying before we started recording, if I was 20 years old in college, I would love to see your template for how you ended up where you are. And so if it's all right with you, I'd like to just kind of start out with where you grew up and then just kind of go through your, your series of interesting jobs that got you where, where you are now. So where did you grow up? So I was uh, born and raised uh, just outside, just on the South side of Cleveland, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And it's there till I graduated high school. And, uh, you know, I grew up less than two miles from the Cuyahoga Valley national park, uh, which I think was designated a national park in 94. I want to say it was a national recreation area, but, um, home to the uh, infamous Cuyahoga River, the river that burns. Oh, yeah. That's the river, not, huh? Not just once, not twice, but three times it caught on fire. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I grew up right down the road from that. And it's 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 33,000 acres spanning between Cleveland and Akron. And most people don't realize it's one of the most visited national parks in the country just because of its uh, proximity to two major metropolitan areas. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up there and, and playing in, in that, uh, that is my backyard. Um, and then upon leaving, uh, I left, uh, Cleveland to go to college. I was looking at uh, a lot of schools up North. I, I wrestled, uh, through high school and was looking at uh, some schools for potential wrestling programs. And, and I had some college, uh, scholarship offers and said, you know, I, I didn't really care to keep doing that sport uh, on that level and started broadening my uh, search and, and found this tiny little school of 1200 students in Salisbury, North Carolina, uh, called Catawba college. Yep. And, uh, let me tell you when, when you're in Cleveland for a long and gloomy winter and you get to make a trip to visit a college in North Carolina in March and, uh, all the cherry blossoms are blooming and you know there's there's girls laying out in the quad and <laughs> you, you you were like wow this is a different this is a different part of the world i could i could grow to appreciate and um <laughs> and, and they had a phenomenal environmental science program uh, i i found out so you knew at when you were 18 senior in high school that you wanted to pursue this this line of work yeah, you know, I, actually, when I was a junior is when I figured it out, and it's funny because I thought that was the norm. I just thought, okay, you know, you figure out what you want to do and you go do it, and and you 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 come up with your checklist and you start checking stuff off. Uh, I learned out later in life that that is not how most people do it. And it's rather unique, and um, yeah, definitely. When you look at your resume, I mean, a lot of people want to be a forest fire a forest firefighter, and a lot of people want to live in, you know, outside of Aspen, but, <laughs> or live on a ranch outside of Aspen, which is even better. But yeah, you've got the the second part down, which is actually making it happen. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, a couple of years ago had my hometown newspaper, they do a, a monthly interview of a, a graduate of our high school. And I was somehow, my name got uh, put on that list and they called me and, you know, I'm pretty fortunate in that I got to be a wildland firefighter, you know, or you, and I said to the guy, you ask any, any six year old kid what they want to be when they grow up. And it's either a, a firefighter or a cowboy or an astronaut. 
and I got to be two out of three. And <laughs> that, that third one requires a lot more additional schooling than I'm just not interested in doing. So uh, it's, it's been good so far. But yeah, I ended up down there and, and knew I wanted to study environmental science. They had a, the Catawba College Center for the Environment was a phenomenal program. They, uh, it's a private school and they offered uh, wonderful financial aid. And uh, yeah, ended up down there and it's a very small, intimate program, but they have right on the backside of the campus, the college actually donated a conservation easement on 100 or 200 acres uh, right on the edge of campus to maintain it as a open space for ecological research. And so that was really exciting. And had a great uh, group of student mentors there when I was a freshman, some wonderful seniors that really uh, took me under their wing, who I'm still great friends with um, on many levels, personal levels. We, we serve on boards with each other still. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was wonderful. And it was interesting because they, they got so close to that class and they, they left, they graduated, you know, and, and went on, uh, and I was a little depressed, like, okay, now they're gone. I'm a sophomore now. And there was, I didn't have that same kind of camaraderie with yep. the, the new senior class. And I was like, man, I, I don't know about this place. And I almost transferred schools. I, was, I went through the transfer process. I was looking at a school in uh, Wisconsin called Northland College, which was even smaller. It was like <laughs> nine students. Um, but they, they tagged themselves as the environmental liberal arts school and mm-hmm. say, like, right, you know, maybe I'll go up there. And then, and then I realized, you know what, so what if I'm a sophomore, like this is, I could step up and be a leader and do what, you know, do what I think is right. So I canceled that transfer and, and stayed there. And as a sophomore started getting in some leadership roles. And I think that was where I really, uh, was exposed to the, the ability to kind of take the reins and, mm-hmm. and, you know, make the world your oyster. And man, it's been trouble ever since. No, that's, that's what you, that's what you want, man. I mean, the thing is, if, if you don't take the reins, somebody else is going to take it for you. And yeah. so, uh, you might as well, might as well be in charge. Um, so you were at Catawba, which is a, which is a great school, by the way. You know, I went to school right up the road at, uh, at Wake Forest, but I'd, I'd come down to that neck of the woods all the time for, uh, you know, hiking around and fishing and that kind of stuff. I, I love it down there. Yeah. Not um, to mention all the good barbecue in the area. Oh yeah. Well, my sister, my sister lives just North of Charlotte. So I was always driving through that area um, when I was going down there to visit her. Um, yeah. Serious barbecue there. Like they'll start mm-hmm. fighting over the barbecue. If you, if you disrespect it. <laughs> I actually, funny side story. I, I took, um, I think my sophomore year in North Carolina history and the first day of class, the professor hands out, uh, the syllabus in the first two weeks, um, I think it was like four or six classes. It was all about barbecue. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And it, it was amazing how much uh, a type of food uh, was reflective or indicative of the uh, settlement of that region. And it was just, uh, it was phenomenal. He did, uh, I, I applaud that professor for his approach to um, engaging us in, in a history lesson. Yeah. And here you are, uh, you know, almost 15 years later remembering it. Um, yeah, I'm yeah. from the Eastern part of the state, uh, like the coastal plain and yeah. the, the whole bar, the barbecue there is vinegar based. Whereas up, you know, as you go West, it gets more, um, tomato based. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, people really, really take it seriously. <laughs> well, 
I don't know if you know that. Part of it was because obviously Eastern North Carolina was settled first. And at that time, uh, people thought tomatoes were poisonous. I did not know that. Yeah. And so, you know, tomato, no one ate tomatoes. And then as, as settlement happened, and as you progress into North Carolina, you get different settlers coming across the, sea, the ocean and bringing different uh, cultures and cooking methods and ingredients with them. Yeah. And so that's why, you know, you at the coast, you you get the whole hog. And, and uh, as you move inland and get Western barbecue, you get uh, pork butt, pork shoulder and tomato based because people realize tomato is not a, a poisonous uh fruit i guess not a vegetable but um yeah that's uh, sorry i digress no but. i love that see that's exactly why i wanted to have, have you on the podcast because every time i talk to you i learned i learned cool stuff so i and i man i was born in north carolina I didn't know that that's unacceptable so that's that's perfect so mm-hmm. you're at catalba uh finished up after four years and then what did you do so my uh geez what was it my Going into the summer between my junior and senior year, I, I decided I you know, needed to get some sort of internship. And my aunt back in Ohio was the uh, recreation director for the town just south of me, uh, village actually, a l- little small place. It was <laughs> the town just north of where LeBron James grew up. Okay. And so she, uh, there was a, a piece of property, I think it was 30 acres or so, that was for sale. Um, was slated for development, but the owner said, listen, if you guys can raise funds, we'll sell it to you. You guys make it a, um, a local, uh, park or conservation area, open space. And so she knew what I was doing and called me up and invited me to do an internship. And I did it along with another, uh, uh, student my age. And we basically wrote this grant for, I want to say $380,000 spent the whole summer working on this grant mm-hmm. and uh, submitted it to a conservation uh, fund in Ohio. And we ended up getting it. I mean, there was definitely help from some outsiders, but you know, here you've got two college interns writing this grant all summer long for, you know, between quarter and a half million dollars. And we got it when they were able to buy this, this farm and conserve it. And now it's this open space and it's funny to look back because I write grants all the time for <laughs> yeah. a lot of money than that. And you kind of throw it together in a week. So, <laughs> so, but it was, it was a great, uh, opportunity. I was, I was really proud of myself for doing that. And as I got back to North Carolina, I, uh, for my senior year, I had an opportunity to intern at the local land trust, the land trust for central North Carolina, which was right down the road in Salisbury yep. and did that. And as I was wrapping up, my fall semester, the director said, Hey, you know, would you be interested in a permanent job after graduation? And I mean, without skipping a beat, I just said, no, not really. But (laughs) here here I am being presented with a a job. And I said, you know, I want to, I want to do, I want to study wildlife. I wanted to help the wildlife. That was really my interest in college, wildlife ecology, and was looking at North Carolina State University to study uh, wildlife biology and conservation. So I said, thanks for the offer, but no thanks. Uh, and, and I went on to study the work there again in the spring as an intern. And I think it was about March or so. And it, it dawned on me the work I was doing for wildlife through habitat conservation, private land conservation, 
which equals habitat conservation, and went and knocked on his office door and said, you know what, I've, I've reconsidered. I would really love to take you up on that opportunity. And uh, I think I graduated on a Saturday and started work on a Tuesday. And Not so, bad. Yeah, it was a, it was a really good uh, – it worked out pretty well for me. So, And I started with the Land Trust for Central North Carolina. And so you were there. How long were you there? Oh, so I, I interned for a year and then was there for another, I think, two years or so. Nice. Um, all the while, you know, trying to consider what my next option would be and uh, exploring graduate programs and careers. And, uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember how it all went, went down. But like I said, I was really looking at NC State for wildlife and then um, – it was one of my it was my advising professor, Dr. John Ware at Catawba, who was almost like a, a father figure to me, a second parent. And uh, you know, he said, you know, you should really consider the the program at Duke. It's very interdisciplinary, and uh, I think you can get what you want out of it and a lot more. And so I started looking at that and realized that was the the right fit for me. Mm-hmm. And so, so I applied to the program at Duke and somehow miraculously uh, was accepted and entered into uh, a program there and, and ended up actually pursuing two master's degrees there. So, Did you really? I didn't realize that. Yeah, they, um, they have a uh, master of environmental management and a master of forestry. And so I uh, ended up signing on for both of them and did my master of forestry focusing in forest restoration and fire ecology. And then my master of environmental management was focusing in landscape scale ecology and wetland ecology and restoration. That program is great. It seems like all the the top people I meet in conservation, they either went there or they went to the school of forestry at Yale. It was one of those two. And it seems like so many of the leaders that you see in conservation throughout the West, and I'm sure on the East Coast as well, they 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 all went there, which is which is really cool. Um, so, when you think about your experience in conservation on the East Coast, and then you think about what you've done on the West Coast, and we'll talk more about that um, in a minute. But what what would you say are the main differences in the, the conservation efforts in North Carolina versus Colorado? Oh man, um, so many things. They're 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 totally different worlds. And you know, as I was telling you earlier, even the West, you you try and categorize the West. I just uh, you know, I'm right now I'm in Palm Springs, California, talking to you uh, at my uncle's place, and driving from Colorado to California, the West is just so vast and so diverse and then growing up in the Midwest and the East and, you know, I spent some time in Virginia as well. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, everywhere's different. There's so many different issues. And I think, you know, when you, when you talk maybe about private, sorry, public lands, people have in the East have this romantic idea of, of, public lands. They just think national parks. They know Yellowstone and Yosemite and the Grand Canyon. And that's, that's it. That's, that's where their tax dollars go. And wonderful. We support it. They have no idea about the BLM and the forest service and the Bureau of Indian affairs and the Bureau of reclamation and, um, U.S. fish and wildlife service. It's just such a disconnect. Um, 
you know, I have people visit me all the time where I'll be on the phone and start talking about the BLM and they have absolutely no idea. And it's funny because recently I keep seeing BLM headlines in the news and I'm like, wow, it's BLM's catching, you know, mainstream media. Well, it's the Black Lives Matter movement. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. Yeah. I, I noticed that the other day as well. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just it's funny because it's uh, not, not not the issue, but just um, it's two different worlds. You know, oh, yeah. out here, BLM is the, the largest landowner in the country. Well, and an example east, of that, I don't know about. Yeah, it's it, an example of that. I was, um, I had some friends come out. We were skiing at at Vale or somewhere, and they didn't realize that the mountain is national forest. You know, they thought that yeah. Vale Resorts, the publicly traded company, owned all those ski runs. And whereas the reality is, pretty much any mountain range, for the most part more times than not is public land and the bottom, like you were saying earlier, the fertile ground is private land. And so ski resorts lease that property from the national forest service. And, and I, that's just something that I've just kind of a base base level knowledge that I've had. That it, it was so surprising to me to, to see that somebody didn't think that, but I, you know, if you're coming from North Carolina, there really isn't any much public land at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very different. So you finished, you went to Duke, had a great experience there. I know you did some pretty cool internships over the course of that. Um, and one of them was a wildland firefighter, which you briefly mentioned earlier. Can you talk a little bit about that? And if, do you have any crazy stories, anything, anything crazy happened when you were doing that? That's, <laughs> and crazy can um, be scary, funny, um, anything. Man, it was, it was a good, uh, it was a fun part of my life, no doubt. Um, you know, it's funny. I come from a, a Irish Catholic family in, in Cleveland and, uh, I've got five family members that are structural city firefighters. My dad, my brother, two of my uncles and my cousin, and, and a lot of my mom and, and a lot of people are, are, are nurses in my family. So all public servants and, but you know, they were firefighters. And so when I went into, uh, environmental science, it was a, uh, okay, whatever, whatever. <laughs> Damn hippie. Go. Yeah. Right. Go save the whales or whatever you're going to do. <laughs> and, um, which, you know, is a very obscure thing in, in, uh, suburbia and mid in the Midwest. And, uh, it was funny when I, because people would always say, "Well, why aren't you going to be a firefighter like your dad or your your uncles or blah blah blah," and, and then years later had the opportunity through the Nature Conservancy, who I, I've done a lot of work with, to get trained as a wildland firefighter, and that was primarily for the purpose of helping conduct prescribed fires. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of a sudden, I'm somewhat. Uh, relatable to the family nice. and at that point my little brother had already man he you know he he too knew what he wanted to do at a young age he i think when he was a junior or senior in high school was already taking fire classes and everything was a firefighter by the time he graduated high school so he was quickly the the, the favorite son and then uh when i became a wildland firefighter you know i started gaining some ground on that so <laughs> So, yeah, it was it was cool. I ended up being a uh, I, I did wildland fire for seven years. I think I was doing it actively. Um, a lot of it was on a volunteer basis. I did some seasonal work on some crews, um, but mostly prescribed fire. 
And golly, I think it was, I stopped counting, but it was somewhere over 50 prescribed fires. I think I've been part of. Wow. Um, and you know, most people don't realize that the South is home to 85% of the prescribed fire in the country. Mm -hmm. And so I had a lot of opportunities to, uh, contribute to fire management and forest restoration down there and and see a lot of cool stuff. And, And yeah. So for my own education, North or the, the Southeast has so many of these prescribed burns and you, you really don't necessarily hear about massive forest fires, except for that one that just ripped through the, the Smokies. Um, yeah. Why is there not more of that prescribed burns out West? Is it because the landscapes are just so big? The weather's more unpredictable. Why, well, why don't they do more of that? I mean, I could talk to you for two days on this, but um, you know, the big thing in North Carolina, especially coastal North Carolina, where you find the longleaf pine, um, which is, you know, the, the namesake for the Tar Heel state and the state tree of North Carolina, the, the longleaf pine uh, ecosystem expands historically from Virginia down to Florida over to Texas. And it's a fire dependent system that uh, has fire return on intervals of one to three or three to five years, depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that historically a fire event occurred and, uh, rip through a landscape. Uh, I shouldn't say rip through there, uh, kind of poked around down there, uh, for hundreds and thousands of acres at a time. And the leaf litter is this, you know, very big, uh, pine needle, very flammable. And the necessity of fire in that ecosystem is the, 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 uh, seeds from the longleaf pine cones are so light that if they land on that detritus on the ground, they can't germinate. They need exposure to the soil. So those systems are only capable of regeneration if fire happens, clears out the forest floor, allows exposure to the soil so that the seeds can germinate. And so that's why it's 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 just in order to have those systems function and, and be present, you need fire. And yeah. so it it's just commonplace down there. People whether they were Native Americans or early settlers or mid-century settlers or even present day, they realize the role and they accept it and they go do what they need to do. And this fragmentation happens. Um, historically, it was a lightning strike that started these fires and there was no barriers and development and, and roads to inhibit the, the spread. Um, but as that development happens, you've got managers going out there and setting it intentionally to perpetuate the health of those forests. And the, the one varying, the, the, one of the big differences between the East, uh, primarily the coastal plain where this happened and out here in the West is, or two, humidity and topography. Mm-hmm. So doing control, quote unquote, controlled burns becomes a lot more difficult when you throw in those two factors um, and also the fire return intervals in the systems out here are much, much longer. Some, you know, 20 years, um, some, as, you know, up in the subalpine forest and alpine forest, you know, five to 800 years. So you don't need to go in there and manage with fire as a tool the way managers in uh, eastern North Carolina need to. That's, that's good info. And I, I didn't really realize that. I used to do a lot of quail hunting in Georgia. And mm-hmm. on these properties, you know, every every few years they would do big burns and burn through. And I, I never fully understood 
why they were doing that. I mean, I figured it was for the quail habitat, which it is, but I didn't realize it was for that larger goal of, of getting the, the longleaf pines to, to grow. I've got yeah. a really cool book. I'm looking at it right now. It's propping up my computer. It's called Longleaf Far as the Eye Can See. It's like a coffee uh-huh. table book all about longleaf pine. It's really, really interesting. There, I'll put a there's link to a, it. The, the kind of go to is looking for longleaf. Okay. I can't remember author but that's you know anyone who does anything with longleaf pine is familiar with that book and that was i did my whole graduate studies on longleaf pine forest restorations um and actually i I spent a summer working for the marine corps well it was through duke university but we were contracted by u.s marine corps base camp lejeune and we were studying the the impacts of military maneuvers on forest ecology Mm -hmm. Basically, how does a forest respond when you blow it up? <laughs> and man, that was a cool job. It was so cool. I Where were you, Camp Lejeune? I was at yeah, Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune. Yeah, and I've, I've spent a lot of time there. Drive, I used to drive through there all the time. They they shut it. You can't drive through there anymore after nine eleven. But yeah. when I was uh, before that in college or anything, I'd cruise through there. All the big tanks go across the street, and you have to stop for all these. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's wild up in there. Oh, funny story. I, I had a key because of my research. I had a key to all the gates. I don't know why some graduate research student had a key to all the gates, but um, it was a 4th of July weekend. A uh, AAV, an amphibious assault vehicle, was coming through, and there was a gate that they didn't know about, and they had to get to the um, the beach to get out onto the ship to go out to sea. And we were out there counting plants. And all of a sudden, these like three or four Marines with their their guns and everything come strolling up on two of us counting plants. And they're like, hey, do you have a key to this gate? And we said, yeah, we do. But we'll only open it if you give us a ride in your uh, <laughs> <laughs> assault vehicle. So I got to put on the flak jacket and the, you know, the Kevlar helmet and cruise around. And holy cow, that thing was fun for a little while. That's awesome. <laughs> so anyhow, I, I digress again. Here. I would have, uh, I don't think I would have been negotiating with it. I would have been too scared. Uh, that, that was a good move. Yeah. Um, so I could keep talking about that stuff forever, but I want to, you've got so much other interesting stuff. I want to make sure we hit it. So after grad school, you, at some point after grad school, you, you moved out West and you started working on ranches. And so can you, can you tell how that came to be? Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I had a uh, ex-girlfriend who, uh, put the idea of Colorado in my mind and started as I was in North Carolina and started considering it. And through all my studies realized that I want to function at scale. I want to be able to contribute and get the most bang for my buck. And I needed to be in the West to do that. Um, you know, back East, it was just such small parcels of the land, such uh, diversity and ownership. And I wanted to really operate on a large scale. And so I really started pointing my eyes West and found it to be very difficult to be a um, student of the East and successfully place myself in the West without really having been there. Mm-hmm. And so I, I sent out a lot of applications and, you know, was beat out by graduates of Colorado State, Montana State, Idaho, Wyoming, things like that. And it was just like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Montana. I'm going to go to Bozeman. There's a lot going on up there. Ted Turner, who is one of my idols, uh, is, his operations are based out of there. 
And I just said, I need to go to Bozeman. And I was about to pack up my car. I was wrapping up on a fire crew. And I think I was a week out from doing this. And I got a call from this kid I just randomly ran into when I was finishing up in grad school. And he was cowboying on a ranch in eastern North Carolina. I'm sorry, eastern Colorado. And one of my friends said, hey, you know, we're talking to him. said, hey, you got to meet Connor. He He's looking to go out west. And so they connected me with this, this kid, Jack Butel. And we chatted for 15 minutes, you know, back in April. And I think this was December, maybe early spring, uh, several months later. And I get a random email from him saying, hey, that ranch I'm working on, or I worked on, he's now at, at the program at Duke. They're looking for for ranch hands, cowboys, people to work out there. Would you be interested? And I said, heck yeah. So he put me in touch with the the manager of that operation, who's uh, Duke Phillips, who, who's just a great guy. Yep. And um, so we started chatting, and, and I somehow got this opportunity to work on this ranch. And, and the great thing, Duke and his operations, uh, Duke Phillips, um, he's, I think, third-generation rancher, mm-hmm. and he – he sees the need to expose uh, young people to agriculture that have no exposure to it at all. And so my story is not uncommon with him. And he took me on and brought me out there. And I worked at uh, this 89,000 acre ranch um, called Chico Basin Ranch. Yep. And uh, man, it was awesome. I got to cowboy for three months. So when you showed up there and you, you didn't have really any, any experience in, in that line of work and you, and, and they put you to work. I mean, what was the learning curve like there? Because I would think, first of all, there, there are these hard skills you need to have that you didn't have. And then second of all, it's, it's backbreaking work. I mean, I guess if you were a, you were an athlete and you're strong from, you know, from wrestling, that kind of thing. So you could deal with, with that part, I would guess. But, but what did you think? I mean, was it just overwhelming at first? Yeah. Well, and you know, too, out through high school and college during summer and, and winter breaks, I, I landscaped. So, you know, I'm used to digging holes and doing manual labor. So I wasn't too worried about it, but you know, some of these other things like riding a horse and, uh, dealing with cattle were, were new to me. And actually, as I was leaving North Carolina, I had a friend who had a horse farm and I called her up and said, Hey, you know, I've been on some trail rides as a kid. I have, I have no idea what I'm doing. So, um, my friend Tracy, uh, invited me to her place, uh, for the, the weekend. And she basically gave me a crash course on horses, which man, I'm so glad I did because I showed up there and they just said, here's your horse, here's your saddle. We're leaving in 30 minutes. <laughs> and, uh, I was, very, uh, very glad I was able to, uh, I was taught how to tack up a horse and, and mount up and ride at various speeds because man we took off in my first day in the saddle i think on my third day on the ranch we we were did 35 miles in the saddle at a hard trot wow and it was oh man my t- the top of my boots i was bleeding my knees were bleeding i couldn't walk someone jokingly gave me a, a, a gentle shove and i just fell over i couldn't hold myself up standing on the ground and, uh, I was like, this is, this is the real deal. And there's no way after, to fake it, you know, no. I mean, it, it, it's either going to get done or it is, or it isn't. And it's, it's hard. And 
Um, I remember in that interview we were talking about before the interview I did with the photographer, Stephen Smith, he worked at the same ranch and he said the same thing, except I don't think he did any training beforehand and he just showed up and they said, all right, here we go. Get on. Yeah. Oh, and it, it was, it was awesome. It was awesome. I, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. It was, um, it was the most amazing experience of my life as far as, uh, exposure to a whole different world to how things, it, it, it was the, the crossroads between the past and the present and the future, actually. Um, if we're talking about food production and management of the West and, you know, I was, I think making 50 bucks in a, uh, a week, um, with obviously subsidized housing and meat and things like that, but it was an amazing experience. And then, uh, Duke and his group, uh, ranch lands, they manage another ranch that's owned by the nature conservancy down in the San Luis Valley, which is even bigger, 103,000 acres. And, he sent me over to that ranch for the second half of 2012. I went there and it was awesome. And, and that ranch, have you ever been down there? I've driven by, but I've never actually been on it. I, I really want to get on it though. It looks awesome. And I love that. I love that area of Colorado too. Oh, the San Luis Valley is such a special and underappreciated place in the state, but, um, they manage that ranch in, in kind of halves. There's the their guest operation, their cattle operation on one half. Um, and then on the other half, they run between two and two and a half thousand head of bison on a 50,000 acre pasture. That's awesome. And I, I was working on the bison side, the Mendoza, the Mendoza Potter Ranch. Um, the Potter side is where they do the guest and the, the cattle, and then the Mendoza is where they do the bison. And I was living and working on the Mendoza side. And Oh my God. I woke up in the middle of a 50,000 acre pasture and I would look out the window and there'd be 500 bison out my window. There was one day where there was one, if I didn't have a screen in my window, I could have pet it. He was eating my flower bed and it was just, it was, oh my goodness. It was the most amazing experience. They're impressive animals. And I, I read a book by that guy named Steven Rinella. He's a, he's a big, big hunter, yeah. but he wrote a book. I think it was his first main book. Yeah. American Buffalo. And I just, I really didn't know much about him. Even though I'd lived in Wyoming for a few years and I, that book is, it changed my whole perspective on it. Now yeah. I can't get enough of reading, reading books. Do you have any other good book recommendations about Buffalo? Um, well, I would say, uh, to, like I said before, Ted Turner's my hero and Ted Turner has done, done so much um, in recent years to, or let's say recent decades to promote and enhance the status of the Buffalo. So whether it's his book, Call Me Ted, or um, Last Stand, Ted Turner's Quest to Save a Troubled Planet, which I'm currently reading. That's a good um, one. Wonderful books. And then I would always point back to uh, our, our mutual hero, Teddy Roosevelt in the story of Wilderness Warrior, uh, which does a great job of depicting the efforts he, the Bronx Zoo, um, and so many others did to keep the uh, American bison from going extinct. Yeah, if it weren't for Teddy Roosevelt and those guys, you know, these these rich uh, New Yorkers or East Coasters, at least, not, they, they'd be gone. There wouldn't be a single yeah. one here. Um, and I think a lot of people don't understand that. And then that gets into the whole conversation about how can hunters really be conservationists. And I've talked about that at, ad nauseum on here with other people. So we don't need to go into it, but that, you know, I think if anybody's got a question about how can you hunt and be a conservationist, just, just read your history 
and, oh, and that, that'll that'll get it started. Um, yeah, I would say. I mean, people don't realize the American bison, and and it was it's difficult to estimate historic populations, but somewhere between thirty and ninety million animals, mm-hmm. and they were reduced down to what was it less than two or one thousand? Yeah, I think it was like five hundred, something like that. It, and to be brought back from that, and um, and then again, Ted Turner making uh, a market for them. And and conserving them, he's just done phenomenal work. So one of the things I admire about about him and is that he's he's doing it and he he's he's figuring out a way to bring these animals back. But he's also making money in the process. And I think some people get angry about that, and some people think, well, he he controls the 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 end market for the meat, and he maybe his his um, you know goals aren't all that pure or whatever, but. He's a businessman and he, and he's driven by money and the reality is that the whole country is driven by money and so he's figured out a way to to do conservation on a large scale of this of this species and also make money in the process and so I think that's I think that's fine. I mean obviously you could argue about the details and maybe there's a better way to do it but I I really do think that in the end in order for conservation to 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 really operate on a huge huge scale it's got to be financial. It's got to be financially viable for people. It can't just continue to be charity. You know what I mean? Yeah, and this loops back around to one of our uh, the initial things we discussed here was the relationship between private land management and public land management. Someone like Ted Turner, who owns over two million acres and has the resources to manage it well, doesn't have uh, to worry about an electorate or constituents to appease. Um, is able to do phenomenal management, very progressive management. And then people don't realize that a lot of the management strategies from that, that federal agencies utilize are a result of private land management. Yeah. They, these large scale private land managers figure it out and, and fail and reassess and utilize what we call adaptive management to develop a strategy that works and is economically viable then the public land managers utilize those strategies and, and oftentimes to great success. So it's the people like Ted Turner or even I'm sure, you know, Lewis Bacon down in the San yep. Valley who really do some progressive land management stuff on their own dime. Um, it's to the benefit of the, the public as a whole. I agree. We've actually got a ranch uh, for sale that's it's in between Lewis Bacon's big 180,000 acre ranch and then Ted Turner's yeah. to the south uh, in New Mexico. Yeah, it's awesome. It's got you can own your own 14er. Oh if, my goodness. If you have to have 100 million 100 million dollars. <laughs> 13ers and a 14er. Oh my goodness, it's it's a phenomenal place. Yeah, it's it's really awesome. I mean, it's basically like a national park. And I think when you look at Turner's places south and then Bacon's, it's more flat, kind of open sage type type um, um, land. But this property, it's it's like Indian Peaks here, you know, in the Front Range. It's it's unbelievable. Um, yeah, it's awesome. I just need to come up, scratch together a hundred mil. So. Um, you all right? So you we could talk about we could talk about all these different parts of your career for an hour each at least. No but we got to I want to keep it moving so I don't take all your all your time. But so you you finished up on the ranch or the ranches, and then at some point you ended up working for the Aspen Valley Land Trust. And can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, you know, like I said, my um, 
career out of college was in the land trust world. And I, I failed to mention this, but part of the reason I went back to graduate school was, you know, we were doing great conservation work, but I realized that, you know, just slapping a conservation easement on a piece of property doesn't necessarily ensure um, that that property is going to be a, in good condition forever. It will pr protect it from development, but doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you're going to have healthy ecosystems out there. And so I wanted to go back to school to learn how to take care of these lands, specifically conserved lands. And so I didn't expect to go back to the land trust world. I always kept my eye there just because I think they do great things. And, and most people don't realize there's over 1,700 land trusts uh, in the country doing just wonderful work. Yep. And so, oh my goodness, funny story. I was, I was back in North Carolina and uh, was contemplating this job and visiting with a friend. We went out to the bar and I remember I had, we got back that night and it was East coast time and, and had, I opened my computer and saw this job posting was up there. I was contemplating it and said, you know what, screw it. Let's just apply for it. And had a couple beers in me and just <laughs> finished, finished a, what turned out to be an alright cover letter and uh, sent it in and woke up the next morning to an email. Uh, I made the deadline by like 20 minutes. Nice. <laughs> and uh, I had an email saying they wanted to interview me for the job. And I said, well, how about that? You know, I've obviously heard of Aspen, but never been there. And um, ended up driving from the San Luis Valley up there a couple weeks later for an interview. And um, I think out of 120 candidates, uh, I was one of four finalists and obviously was the one who got the job. And the funny thing, all, all the candidates, all the finalists had advanced degrees, had experience in conservation. And what set me apart was that I had time uh, on a ranch and I could understand and relate to ranchers. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wasn't a rancher by any means, but it could at least be empathetic. Yeah, you can speak the language and you yeah, – yeah, yeah, definitely understand that. So, you know, again, like I said before, making $50 a week uh, to play cowboy uh, wasn't an easy thing financially, but it paid off. I didn't realize it at the time, um, but it's what set me apart. And so here I am. Now I landed a job with Aspen Valley Land Trust, which is the oldest land trust in the state of Colorado, uh, founded in 1967. And they had conserved uh, about 170, 175 properties from the Independence Past area uh, east of Aspen all the way down to near Grand Junction, totaling almost 40,000 acres. And yeah, it was a great opportunity. I got to work with some wonderful, wonderful landowners, um, some who were, you know, been on their property for generations and some who, uh, you know, are from other parts of the country and bought it already conserved. So it was, it was a really awesome experience. Yeah, and you had a great team there. I, I would imagine like Martha, for example, who's executive director, was a, a great mentor um, to have. And I feel like that's a that was probably a great experience because you got you were dealing with everybody from billionaire business people to fifth, sixth, seventh generation ranchers. Uh, and, and you don't you don't get that in a lot of a lot of areas. You know, I think some people just have to specialize so much, but for being a um, you know, in that just in that particular geographic area, you get a a pretty wide range of of landowners, which I would imagine you learned a lot. Oh yeah, no, no doubt. It was it, it was very different than doing conservation in the east. That's for sure. And and I say that because a lot of people in the east in North Carolina, 
that that was their family land. They're they're very suspicious of outsiders. And when I started doing conservation in in North Carolina, coming from Cleveland, I, I had this very weird accent. I had a uh, somewhat of a northern accent mixed with some southern, throwing in some y'alls and <laughs> my kids and y'all kids and um, didn't really know what I was doing. And it took a while to prove myself and gain their trust in the South, but it was awesome coming out here because so many people um, in this valley were from somewhere else as well. And so they didn't have the suspicions and were a lot more welcoming. So I feel like I was able to hit the ground running. Plus, I, I kind of knew what I was doing a little bit more than right out of college. Yeah, that's interesting what you said about the South because I had the the same experience when I moved West. I mentioned this in the last episode I recorded, but people, when they hear my Southern accent, you know, that some of these ranchers, if they don't know me, it's instant suspicion. And I, I, ta- I said this in the last podcast, but two, I had two different ranchers in Montana on two separate occasions. Once I started talking, they looked at me really funny and they said, are you from Scotland? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, somebody was, um, not, not me though. Oh, everyone thought I was from either Boston or New York when I Damn went down. Yankee. Yankee. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So you're you're there in the ass in the the Roaring Fork Valley, which stretches from Carbondale, Basalt, Aspen, and you've kind of made a, a home for yourself there in, in your time with uh, Aspen Valley Land Trust, and now with your your current job with Resiliency Lands. Um, and one thing that that I admire about you is that you you seem to to put a heavy emphasis on volunteer activities um, and you seem to give back to the community in a lot of different ways. You're on a BLM uh, board and you're on like the five point film festival. So can you just maybe talk a little bit just briefly about some of the causes that you're passionate about outside of conservation and um, why it's important for to, to, to volunteer and, and give back? Yeah. Well, I, I think like I said, with, with my, um, occupations my my family have being firefighters and nurses um, civil service is just something that was ingrained in me mm-hmm. and uh, you know I got when I first started in college I think I was in 12 different clubs my freshman year um, and just realized that I can't sustain at that level um, but yeah I, I just I found a lot of um, meaningful experiences through volunteerism and obviously land management is something near and dear to me. And, you know, while I'm really adamant about private land management, like I said earlier, public land management is runs parallel. And so I um, actually uh, last year, or I guess almost two years ago, applied for a position on a BLM resource advisory council for Northwest Colorado. And, you know, for those who don't know, there's, I think 33, um, racks as we call them around the country. And it was part of the federal land management, uh, FLIPMA, uh, 1976, I believe yep. it was to, um, you know, give a lot of power to the government to manage these public lands. And they created these racks and they're made up of 10 to 15 individuals, um, filling different interests from commercial commodity interest, environmental, uh, that includes recreation and, and horse and borough, and then also some representatives of public uh, local government offices and the public at large. And basically, we get, we get together four times a year in our region. For me, it's northwest Colorado. The staff people 
present the issues that they're dealing with and we discuss them as interested parties and really have a say in the, the future of our public lands uh, in, in that agency. So myself and about a dozen people get to have a say in the management of almost 4 million acres. Of That's Northwest, really cool. Which is mind boggling. Absolutely. I mean, the, <laughs> you know, and I, I had to go all the way up to the uh, secretary of state, Sally Jewell to get approval for that. So it was, it was, pretty intimidating, but, uh, it's something we all hold, um, in high regard and are very serious about. So I do that. Um, I'm also involved with uh, what's called the Roaring Fork Future Forest Roundtable on their steering committee. And we, uh, get together all the land management, uh, both public nonprofit, private land, uh, management folks in the region to discuss, uh, management issues and, and how they relate primarily to white river national forest. So yeah, do that. And then, uh, like you said, five point film festival was something that I, uh, got on board with last November and, uh, man, for anyone who hasn't, uh, experienced five point, it's one of my favorite things in the world. Yeah. I've never, I've never, um, been up there and done that. I need to, I need to get up there at some point. I've, I've, seen a lot of the films that are featured, but, um, I've never actually attended. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that in the coming year. Yeah. Um, come up this, uh, April, third weekend of April. It's our 10 year anniversary. That'd be awesome. Um, and th- yeah, one other thing about volunteering, I think, um, you know, whenever people ask me, how do you get into conservation or how do you, you know, get into whatever, I always say volunteering is the key. I mean, I feel like that's, that's how I've established a network of people. Um, and you know, obviously you don't get paid, but it's an investment in the future. And, um, I think, you know, I'm, I'm from North Carolina. I, I don't know anybody. I didn't know anybody out here when I moved here and the way I formed a network and kind of became known is just go up to people and say, Hey, put me to work. And, um, I think people, it shows that you got a work ethic and it shows that you're, you're energetic and you're, you're passionate. And I think that's, if I had to give advice to anybody, any young people, that's it. Just volunteer as much as you can, as much as you can, so you can do a good job. I've been asking people the same series of questions at the end of each one of these interviews. And they're, they're relatively quick questions, but you can answer them as lengthy as you want. Um, And the first one I've been asking is, do you have any favorite books related to the American West or books that you, you recommend to, to people uh, that they're kind of must reads if you want to learn about the American West? Yeah. You know, um, like I've said a couple times now, one of my favorite books is uh, wilderness warrior, Theodore Roosevelt, and the crusade for America by uh, Douglas Brinkley. Yep. It was, it, I would want to read it again, but it was a very painful book to get through. It's so big. It's like it's dense. It is so much information and it, it, it makes you excited about what people can do, what a single person can do. But at the same time, it makes you realize you will never be Teddy Roosevelt. He got the stuff he's done with his life. You know, you need a time machine to go back to, you know, 15 years old to put yourself on the trajectory that he, he found himself on. Yeah. I mean, he, he's contributed so much to this country uh, in so many different capacities that it's, it's not even funny. Yeah, it's hard to get your head around how much that guy did. And, and I think personally, I think his time as president was probably the least interesting to me. You know, he, that's, he did so much other stuff and he wrote 30 books. I think he, he would read a book a day, even when he was president. So 
I mean, shit, for, for me to try to read, you know, a few book books a month, I should be able to pull that off, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely mind boggling what, what he did. And like you said to the stuff he did, not just as president, uh, but before and after, and then to, uh, make a run at a, a third term under the bull moose platform was just, yeah, I get shot on. in the chest and then get up and give a 90 minute speech with the bleeding oh. all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he's without a doubt, one of the most important people in, in defining what I do. Um, any other, any other good books that if you were recommending a few, you would say this is a must read. I agree with wilderness warrior. If you can get through it, it's, it's, it's dense. Yeah. You know, again, I would say the Ted Turner books are really, uh, enlightening to me talking about what a private landowner can do, um, to influence, uh, to do good, what good in land management in the West and influence the public agencies. So any Ted Turner book is, is really big for me. Um, you know, again, with my interest in fire, I think some books that I really enjoyed, Fire on the Mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever heard of that book? No, um, I've never heard of it. It's about the uh, 1994 Storm King fire here. Uh, it was actually just down the road from me in, in Glenwood Springs, uh, where it was the mo- at the time was the most deadly fire in, in the history of the United States, for, or modern history. Fourteen firefighters died. Um and John McLean, you might remember that or recognize that name. He's the son of Norman McLean, mm-hmm. who wrote "A River Runs Through It." You know, then the famous movie. Um, and his dad, Norman, wrote uh, "Young Men in Fire," which is about the 1949 Man Gulch fire up in Montana, where 13 firefighters died. Um, so, you know, those those are really important books to me. I would say too, uh, have you ever heard of the author or scientist actually, Stephen Pine? I have, but I can't, I can't place why he's down at Arizona state university and he's a a fire historian. And if you want to know anything about anything with fire, he's the guy to go to. I mean, he's written books like a brief history of fire, um, where it just gives you a synopsis of what's going on in in fire ecology and policy in different regions or nationally. So I've gained a lot a lot from him uh, over the years and reading his books. I, I recommend, certainly recommend those. Those are great. I, and I didn't, the only one of those fire ones I read is young men in fire and I read it in high school. Um, mm-hmm. And so those are, those are great. I'll add them to the list. Do you have any favorite documentaries or films? Yeah, I would say, well, I mean, we talked about it earlier, Ben Masters and unbranded yeah. is uh, just such a great modern film. And, uh, I think he did a great job of of putting together a story that's interesting and very informative. I know listening to your other podcasts, a lot of people are saying that as well. That that's a, something that they recommend. I would also add, you know, not just a documentary, but my involvement with Five Point Film Festival. We've we've geez, put on I think fifty or so films at our annual festival in April. And some of the ones that really hit home to me, there's, have you ever heard of death of the bar T? No, I don't think I have heard of that. You need to see it. It's not a documentary, but it's a, it's a great story. It's, um, it's done by Anton Fogel of forge motion pictures, who is, is from the, uh, I think rifle Colorado area. Yeah, I know who he is. I think I follow him on social media. He's a, he's a real talented photographer as well. So he's done just wonderful films, but it's this great story. It's only about 18 minutes or so of this rancher. It was filmed in Marble, Colorado, right down the road from me, about this rancher who's, you know, that 
age uh, age old story of the rancher who can't you know profit from his land, sells it to a wealthy family, and and what ensues. Um, I, I I found that to be a very powerful film, um, so I, I would check that out. And then you know again with the stuff we do at at Five Point. You get these documentaries like Damnation, which Felt Soul Media did a couple of years ago, talking about um, you know the impact that dams have on our waterways in the West. And, and I don't know, I just think film is a wonderful medium for storytelling and getting messages across. So I watch a lot, a lot of films. So yeah. I can go on. Pete McBride does a lot of great advocacy work through film. So you know any of those those guys. I think um, I think Pete's going to be on here uh, in the coming months, um, so I'm excited to talk to him. He he just hiked the entire Grand Canyon, which is pretty cool. And his buddy that did it with him, Kevin Fedarko, he wrote The Emerald Mile, which is one of the best books I read in in 2016. It's a it's a really good one about the Grand Canyon. Yeah, it's on my list. Yeah, it's awesome. It's really good. Um, so we've kind of talked about all your your activities um, related to, to spending time outdoors. Do you have any activities you do that would be surprising to people? I mean, I think everyone who knows me know I, knows I do this, but people maybe listening aren't, wouldn't be expected, but I'm really big into CrossFit and uh, geez, work out at CrossFit gyms uh, probably three to five times a week. Here I'm on a road trip around the West right now. I'm in Southern California and I've been visiting CrossFit gyms and it's just, you know, something, something I do to keep my sanity and, and my keep in shape, I guess. Yeah, that's, I, I work out at the um, Alpine training center here in Boulder and it's, it's not CrossFit, but it's similar in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I, I hadn't lifted weights since high school and I started going in there and it is unbelievable how much you can get whipped in, you know, in an hour, but I mean, they can whip you in, in 90 seconds for, and yeah. you're done for the day. Yeah. And, um, I was just, I think I, I texted you this morning that I got destroyed this morning and I mean, I couldn't <laughs> talk. I couldn't talk for, for like an hour. <laughs> I know that. I know that. And it's a good feeling. It is. It? That's what I'm, it's, that's why I pay for it. I wouldn't do it on my own. I tell you that I have to have somebody has to make me do it. Um, if you if you want to ski or ride horses or build fence, I don't care what it is, you know, that helps anything. It does. It it helps any, anything you're doing, whether it's, you know, hard work like that, or even, you know, mountain sports, whether it's skiing or running, you know, I haven't been running much at all recently, but my times on some of my local, uh, my loops here in Boulder, like up green mountain are within 30 seconds of my best time ever. And I, I credit it all to that, to that high intensity weight training. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so this is a good question. What's the craziest thing that's ever happened to you in the outdoors? And that could be scary or funny, just a, uh, a memorable, crazy experience. Man, you know, I was, I was thinking about this. I, I got a lot of good ones from, I had a, a time I really thought I was going to die on a, a prescribed fire. I got caught in some really dense vegetation interior of a prescribed fire and, um, was really coming to terms with it, but made it out. And that was, that was fine. I had, you really a, thought you were going to die. I, I was, I, I was, I thought I was going to at least have to deploy my fire shelter. And in that situation, if I did that, um, it wouldn't have done me much good because it was so much vegetation. I just got really hung up in there and, and there was some unknown terrain and the fire started ripping at me. But, uh, Hey, when you're in that position, you get everything moving and made it out. Um, 
uh, have some fun horse stories and a dirt bike story, but probably I think a positive story. One of my f- most memorable experiences ever, and this was at my time at Chico Basin Ranch. We were doing a, a multi-day branding, and you know Chico's almost ninety thousand acres, and it's got fifty-two pastures, I think it is, mm-hmm. and so the smallest pasture was like 600 acres. So, you know, they're, they're big pastures. And so we did a branding one day and, you know, we camp out. It was all very old school. It was all, you know, you ride out, you have a horse drawn wagon pulling everything, all your camping gear. And we're at this camp and there was four of us that were designated to keep our horses in the, in the corral to get up early and wrangle the rest of the horses so that we, we can go about our next day of uh, uh, branding, gathering and branding about another, I think, 600 head of cattle or so. And it was 4.30 in the morning or so. We got up and saddled out and rode up. It was pitch black and went out into this this small pasture, 600 acres, um, which had some of the more dramatic terrain on the ranch, which, you know, it's the plains, but still a lot of arroyos and so we're out there and we split in groups of two and we're just riding around in the dark looking for like 20 odd horses mm-hmm. and we couldn't find anything and, and thought we saw them, didn't. And then all of a sudden the sun crests over the, 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 the horizon and just these 20 horses just illuminated off in the distance. And, and I was with Duke, Duke Phillips and we rode off towards them and started wrangling them up and we were at the top of this this pasture the highest elevation we had to ride them down in the bottom and holy shit i didn't know horses went that fast and <laughs> i i had a great horse i i had taken him through a lot of good times and all of a sudden he had this sixth gear that i knew nothing about and i was just hauling ass and my saddle starts slipping I thought for sure I was done. I and mean, we were zigzagging through Choya cactus. It, and it was, it was crazy. I had tears coming out of my eyes because we were going so fast. And it was just the most amazing experience. I stayed on the horse. We got to the bottom. And the other group, the other two cowboys that were looking out for the, the herd saw us coming down. And they said it was just the, one of the craziest things they ever saw. And man, that is, is one of the things that, that memory just makes me say, you know, that's, that's a part of our history and our culture that I can't let die. I want to be part of, I want to keep, and and to do that, you need to keep these ranches working and profitable. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's memories like that, that, uh, it doesn't take much to recall those and, and get out of bed in the morning. That's really cool. Um, that's, yeah, that's a great one. If you had to pick uh, your favorite location in the West. And I, I can't do this. So I don't know why I keep asking people, but is there, is there one single place and it could be a town, a mountain, a river, just somewhere that's, that's particularly special to you? Yeah. I mean, I would say it's, it's the ranch I live on right now. Mm-hmm. You know, Chico was amazing. Zapata was amazing. I've been to a lot of cool places in the back country, but, uh, you know, the ranch I'm on, I'm on a 2,100-acre ranch, um, actually part of which uh, you guys have listed, um, next to another 2,000-acre ranch and BLM and Forest Service. And it's just, and part of the ranch I'm on is conserved. And so it's just – I woke up 
you know, when I was at the land trust, woke up every day on a conserve ranch and to this day, you know, still wake up on a conserve ranch and just get to know that that view that I look out on is always going to be like that. It really does a lot for me. Um, it, you know, it, it's a personal decision to be in this business and it does a lot for me um, to motivate me to keep doing what I'm doing. So I don't ever want to leave that place if I don't have to, but uh, you know, one day I'm sure I will, but I'll, I'll end up uh, on another ranch and uh, maybe that will be my favorite place. But so far that's my favorite place in the West. Yeah, I've seen some photos of that place, and uh, it looks pretty awesome. And your your little the cabin where you live looks pretty awesome as well. Um, let me see. So, what do you think is the biggest challenge and or opportunity facing the West in the near future? You know, and again, listening to a lot of your podcast, a lot of uh, people say water, and I I totally agree. It's a huge huge issue. But I think maybe a step further is the disconnect that people on the land are having uh, are going to continue to have from the land. Yeah, I mean, water is an issue. Policy is an issue. Fire is an issue. Um, But when people move here or become farther removed from the land, they don't understand the necessity for water rights or uh, contributing to management policies, whether it's private land or public land or conservation in this initiative. So as people become more disconnect, disconnected, they, uh, I think that's where we're going to have the problem. You know, I'm down here right now in Southern California on a, on a road trip and this is downstream from where I am back home in Colorado and in, in, in Wyoming and Utah, we make the water yep. over there we're catching these systems and making snow and making the water. And I look down here and see, you know, these swimming pools and I drove through Vegas and you see the water features and, you know, you just, I think people in Colorado who are part of, are at the source really understand the value of water and, and these resources. And as people become more and more removed, whether it's geographically or um, through generations and being removed from the land, they don't understand the value of those resources and therefore don't. And I think education too, they, they're not aware through the education system, how that all ties together. Um, people probably won't be as involved as historically in the decision-making or, or influencing decision-makers. Yeah, I think that's that's all a very good point. And I feel like the easiest first step to, to get people to start making that connection is just get outside, you know, go hiking, go fishing. Yeah. Just, just, I mean, it doesn't have to be a big deal. Um, you just in your, wherever you are in little local state park or open space, just get out there. And that's, that'll help you help people to begin to make that connection. I think that's, that that was a, that was a really good answer. Um, So next to the last question, um, if you could make a request of the listeners, people listening to this podcast and the, the general theme is that everybody listens to this has a love of the American West in one way or the other, whether that's art, ranching, conservation, athletics. Um, So if you can make a request of those people, who would it be? I mean, what would it be? I think it just, you know, echoes what I just said. 
just be cognizant of, of what's going on. Um, read the papers. Read your, I think the West is amazing for its local publications. It's unlike anything I've seen back East where you get these big metro newspapers. Here you get these small-town newspapers. You can be very aware of what's going on, on on the landscape in your local communities. Be aware of what's going on and, and contribute and, and contact your, your politicians. And, and even again, even though I'm in, involved with private land management, it, what happens on the public lands and is influenced by uh, our politicians is so important to these private lands. Because without these grazing leases or these permits – these private landowners, these ranchers can't sustain. They just can't sustain. So people need to be educated, um, stay up on issues, follow groups like Western Landowners Alliance, or, uh, and I think explore from different angles. You know, I get Beef Magazine and I read Range Magazine and read High Country News and follow the Sierra Club. Just it's good to have all the different angles and make decisions for yourself and then take action. I think that's great advice. And I think most people don't do it, especially in this day and age of social media where you can just surround yourself with opinions that validate yours. I think going out of your way to find, um, you know, opinions that, that you don't agree with, but that are well thought out, not crazy stuff. But I do the same thing. You know, I, I subscribe to the Western Livestock Journal and I subscribe to High Country News. And I think the, the answer is somewhere there in the middle, but you have to expose yourself to all to all opinions as long as they're, they've been well thought out. Um, so I th- yeah, I think that's great advice. Nobody's given that advice before. I think that's great. So if people want to connect with you and learn more about you and your, your business, what's the best way to do that? Well, I, I own a web domain. I need to finish making the website, <laughs> but, uh, my website is, uh, resiliencylands.com. My email is Connor, C O N N O R at resiliencylands.com. And, uh, you know, I'm on various social media, LinkedIn, things like that. So yeah, pretty easy to get a hold of. Cool. I'll put links to all that on the uh, episode notes so people will be able to catch up with you. Cause if, like I said, if I were 20 years old and saw your career path, I would, uh, I'd want to emulate it. So keep up the good work, man. Hey, thanks. I want to add one thing. I, I probably should have plugged somewhere else. Cause yeah. it's, and seeing that you're so into, the books, probably the most important book in my my entire life was by Gene Craighead, George, the the youth favorite, My Side of the Mountain. My favorite of all time. It's, it's on my bookshelf in there right now, like a, alongside all these long history books. Yeah. My Side of the Mountain is right there. That 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 book hugely influential on me. What a what an awesome book. Oh my god. I, I go back and I read, and it's a nice small book too. If you want to go backpacking and throw it in your bag, not have a lot of weight, it's a great thing. I have told any any young person or parent, I will buy that book for their kid if they'll read it. And I have bought so many copies of that book. Um, I actually have a friend who's an elementary school teacher and was looking for book recommendations, and I bought a stack of them for her class. And I'd say I have the same book on my shelf, but I just keep giving it away. So that's a great recommendation. I, I've never even considered that um, when I'm when I'm thinking about books, talking about the the West and all this kind of stuff. But that is that is a really whether whether you're in fourth grade or seventy years old, if you haven't read it, you need to. I, th- oh, I, I love that one. And you go beyond me. Not I'm not. I know you're trying to wrap up here, but you know all those books. I don't know if they still 
or requirements in school, but you know, like Sign of the Beaver and Hatchet and Julie Hatchet. the Wolf. Hatchet's a good one. Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, Moby Dick, like those stories of adventure. You know, if it wasn't for those, I, I would certainly. There's a lot of other factors, obviously, but without books like that, I would have never gone down the path I've gone down. And and I would implore any uh, any listener to revisit those books or read it for the first time or buy it for a, a young person because uh, I think those stories do a lot of good. I think I'm going to reread mine. I haven't I haven't reread it in a long time, um, and that's. You know, I could crank through that pretty quickly. I hope yeah. since it's for like third graders, but you never know. <laughs> but no, that is a, that is a great recommendation. Now I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to let that go. All right, man. Well, enjoy the rest of your road trip. Be safe. And, um, I'll look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Ed. This has been a lot of fun and, uh, uh, I look forward to hearing future podcasts that you come up with. Yeah. Let me know if you got anybody I should speak with. Oh, I got a whole list for you. Of course. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.